Indie Media. Cedric, it seems as though there isn't a day that goes by without a, a new reactionary or aggressive measure being introduced by the Abbott government, whether it be a, a crackdown on civil liberties or more reactionary immigration policy. For many, it's come as uh, quite a surprise and a shock that our government has become so incredibly uh, reactionary and you know, some would even say neo-fascist. Do you find it surprising or is this really, does it make sense in a historical sense? Is this really uh, quite well connected to you know, the advancement of the neoliberal capitalist agenda? It's a very, very interesting question, Ray, and a big one. And thank you for the opportunity to talk about that. Yes, you're quite correct. Every day something does go by. And, and I think it definitely is connected to a wider, a wider context, a wider agenda and historical development. I'm not shocked by it. I've, I expect, ultimately, governments under capitalism to do those kind of things. I saw it happen where I grew up in South Africa. There was a particular context there, of course, of the exploitation of the majority population racially and economically, but it still happened when it became necessary for them to hold on to their power to move to those kind of restrictive and oppressive practices. So I'm not at all surprised to see it happen here. It's happened elsewhere in the world before. I want to step back a bit and look at some kind of context. And I'm going to start with a little bit of theoretical stuff and then look at a, an historical context, if you don't mind. But I think we need to understand we live in a capitalist world. Now, that means, the to use a, st- a sort of a um, star, star Trek term, the prime directive of capitalism is endless accumulation of capital. And I stress the word endless. It's not just make enough money so I can retire. Economic actors, which frequently aren't persons, they're corporations or entities, exist just to continually accumulate capital, endlessly, endlessly, endlessly. If you don't, you you die. That creates a whole bunch of social imperatives. Now, capital in our system is accumulated by producing things that are sold on the market. You invest capital, you produce goods, they are sold, and somewhere between the cost of production and the money you get back for selling it, there's a profit. Now, there's various ways of explaining how that works. I don't want to go into that over here. But the core point is that there is a relationship between the money invested into equipment, tools, machinery, and the money invested into wages, employing people to use those tools and machinery. It is the people using the equipment that create that value that enables things to be sold in the marketplace. All the value that is realized in the market exchange is produced by the person doing the work, not the machinery, not the equipment, not the building. But of course, the competitive draft to keep costs down means that an increasing amount of capital is going into plant, fixed stuff, technology, and less and less into people we have smaller and smaller workforces. Except in places where they are incredibly cheap as an emerging third world, you know, emerging just in exploited third world countries. So over the long term, the rate of profit of capital declines. And that's the context for what we call neoliberalism, a way of shoring up and recovering a rate of profit that's acceptable to the capitalist class. Now that agenda entailed a number of things. On the one side, it entailed cutting back on state expenditure, on welfare, social policies, all that kind of post-war social democratic stuff. It entailed reducing the tax bite on corporations and rich individuals, shifting it to the PAYE person. 
But of course, that creates discontent. That creates tension. That creates protest. The other side of the coin is strengthening the state in terms of its powers of repression, strengthening its ability to control people, strengthening its ability to, pre- to, to squash dissent. So in that sense, no, I'm not being surprised. That's the context, I believe, in which Abbott and other governments have moved more and more to the right. It's not a purely ideological thing. It actually makes sense for an agenda to shore up the profit they're taking out of the system or the people they speak for taking out of the system. And in that sense, is it an act of desperation? I mean, it it seems strange to think of it as a a reaction to large-scale social movements or protests in Australia because there really isn't unfortunately. Um, But how is it then related to perhaps, for instance, here in Western Australia, you know, actual resources and the mining boom? Is it more a projection or or a fear of things to come from, you know, the elite and and from the state? Good point. Yes, because you're quite right. There is no, we're not living in Greece. We're not living in Venezuela. We're not living even in Wall Street where there's an Occupy movement a couple of years ago. That's your social movement's pretty much dead on the ground. I mean, the most recent thing we've seen are the um, against closure of West Australian Indigenous communities. We've had some big rallies in Sydney and Melbourne, but there's nothing really happening to trigger this kind of fear. They do seem extremely thin-skinned and frightened of any criticism. And I mean, in a sense, the whole recent kerfuffle of a Q&A illustrates that incredibly thin-skinnedness of the Abbott government. We don't like being asked awkward questions. Not wanting doctors to speak about asylum seekers, and the, the legislation passed yesterday. It's it, it, they are very, 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 very frightened of critique. You, you can, of course, you know, find a whole range of psychological or cultural reasons behind that. I prefer to stick with, I suppose, more political economic material analysis. I think part of it is, as you suggest, it's using opportunities to get things in place. Let's go back to the uh, the famous Twin Towers, two thousand and one, the Patriot Act in America and the militarization of police forces. A whole bunch of things have happened, which on the face of it really are quite needless because there is the only terrorism in the United States comes from the white right wing. It comes from the, you know, the people burning down black churches and shooting people. That's the only terrorism in the United States, domestic terrorism. Nothing's coming from the Islamists. But the opportunity was too good to miss. The opportunity was too good. We, we forget sometimes that these guys... And I don't want to personalise it too much, but they want to stay on top. The ruling class, the capitalist class want to stay on top. And if the market system ultimately isn't going to work and they've got to move to some other way of staying on top, they will do so. That's more important than any commitment to markets or democracy or easy management. And if that requires repressive powers, so be it. And I think they've been preparing basically to do that. So in the sense that they feel this current point that they have won that they you know ideologically they've won economically they're in a you know incredibly beneficial position what of the social movements and protests i mean we're talking earlier uh, before this interview about in the 1980s and in the fall of the berlin wall the death of uh, communism as an alternative ideology and with that also the death of many things since then, we've seen the emergence of a more decentralized, uh, less homogeneous movements, uh, such as, uh, you know, I guess the anti-capitalist movement post-Seattle that adopted, uh, you know, the, the call of sort of one no to global capitalism or neoliberalism, but many yeses for various sort of intersectional, um, I guess, issues. 
Um, and of course, you know, we have theorists like Negri arguing for the multitude and so forth. And there's been many, many manifestations of this. You could say that the Occupy was also a manifestation of this. It was the, the idea of you know, bringing a large scale group of people together rather than on class lines on you know, a multitude of issues. Has this experiment been a failure or have there been successes? And do you still think that that idea of the multitude of you know, people standing up for women's rights or gay rights or indigenous rights you know, all individually in the different campaigns, but sort of coming together in this, um, you know, amalgamated multitude. Is that still something worthwhile? And particularly in the context of Australia, what could that potentially look like? Yeah, it's a, a really <laughs> $64 question, isn't it? Where do we go from here? If I knew the answer, Ray, I wouldn't be talking on the radio. I'd be out there in the street getting millions of people. <laughs> But I, I don't necessarily know the answer. I've got some ideas maybe. But I think one of the dangers with old lefties like me is that we tend to look back, remember things from the past, and, oh, that was fantastic. It should be like that again. And we tend to hark back, you know, glorify and want to reproduce what seemed to be fantastic things from our youth, you know, Vietnam moratoriums, those kind of things, you know. Similarly, if you know a lot of you know, leftist, leftist history, you tend to look back and you find these golden ages when things seem to be organized and people were logic and they're doing the right thing and so on. I think we need to be cautious about that kind of perspective. Very, very cautious. And the reason is time moves on. History changes. What worked in the past worked because it just hit the right spot with that right particular combination of forces. We're in a different time. And you can't simply reproduce the menu. I find this a real problem with some of the um, more doctrinaire Marxist-Leninist bodies. You know, they, they want to go back, oh, this is what the Bolsheviks wrote, let's see what Lenin wrote, and this kind of stuff. And that's, that's very interesting, and so on the ideas, in it. but that's for a particular place in a particular time in a particular context, which quite simply doesn't exist anymore. With every cycle of accumulation, and capital goes through these cycles with big, 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 big depressions, then it starts another one again, and so on like that. With every one of these cycles, the working class as it exists is basically broken down and rebuilt. And you've got to find a new way of organizing, a new way of doing politics that works with that new, that new rebuilt working class. The technical word for it is recomposition and decomposition. Basically, no one has got a handle yet on really understanding the current working class, whether it's in Australia or globally or anywhere else, and therefore hasn't really got a handle on how to relate, build, organize with these people, how to, how to, how to get to them. Hart and Negri's material is an attempt to do that. I don't think it's, I think it's pretty flawed, my, my personal point of view, but it's a first effort and it's a starting point. But the idea of this homogenous uh, white male working class in factories, well, that doesn't really exist anymore. It's a very different working class. And part we've got to recognise also is that in advanced economies like Australia, a lot of people are engaged in not so much production of goods or services even, but in the administration and distribution of those goods and services. That sounds a bit vague. Let me, let me go back to that a minute. Let's go back to that a minute. I spoke earlier on about value being produced by people on the spot of, of, of workers producing value. That value is embedded in products or services. They have to be marketed. Then that amount of money realised has to be distributed around the various people have got a claim on it, has to be shared, has to be got to taxation. There's, various pro there's a lot of things that have to go on. There's a large swag of working people, people on wages and salaries, who actually administer capital and therefore are paid from the value produced by other people. 
Now, this is a very contentious point, and I know a lot of you know more orthodox thinkers are going to be quite critical of me. You're putting in a lot of phone-ins about it, <laughs> complaints, so I'm going to cop, cop some stick when I go out in the public again. But I do think it makes a difference. It means for a good chunk of the working class, they're actually, their livelihood depends upon the perpetuation of capitalist system. They might want a bigger share. They might want more pay to them and less going in the accumulated profits to the owners. But it still depends upon the system existing. And that's quite different to those people who basically have no stake in the system. So we've got to get our heads around these changes. There's also the fact that the most skilled elements of the working class, the most highly paid people at the cutting edge, certainly countries like Australia, are quite affluent. The mining boom and so on like that has, it's a peak, it's a core industry and it's rewarded them well. I'm not saying they're not exploited, they certainly are. They produce far more value than what they take home. But they still, in comparative purposes, take home an awful lot and can get themselves quite comfortable. For them, the system more or less works. So our analysis of the social forces needs to take these kind of changes into account and then find a way of working out who we're working with and how we work with them. All too often we start, I think, with a model in our heads of an organisation, a party, this, that or the other, and we've got to go and try and redo it. Well, we've got to start from the other end.